Well, good morning. Many of you know who I am. I might look a little different this morning than I did in the past. I promise you I'm okay. Just changed a few things up a little bit. What's that? Yes, there you go. <laughs> but uh, for those of you, there's many of you that know me, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Gregory Root. I've been a, a member here at Rosedale Bible Church for several years now, dating all the way back to when Pastor John Scoggin was the pastor. The elders have allowed me over that course of time to teach Sunday school um, over the course of my membership. And I am honored and humbled to be asked this morning by John to provide you this message. I do not take this responsibility like, lightly and will do my very best to honor their leadership with what I have to share. I did let John know that I am inclined more to teaching than to preaching, which means that what follows may feel more like a classroom lecture than an actual Sunday morning service. So please forgive me in advance for this tendency. The title that I settled on is What's in an Education? I thought it an appropriate topic as many of our children have just started back to school this past week. And our educators, principals, we're all back as well. I selected this topic because my entire life has been lived in semesters. Is it first semester or is it second semester now? From K through 12 education, Ray, as soon as I was done with that, I spent my 20s in both public and private education or universities, gardening for myself, two bachelor's degrees, two master's degrees, and an educational um, specialist degree. Uh, those who know me best say I'm way educated beyond my intelligence. <laughs> and I confess, there's a lot of truth to that that comment. Then my, four, my 30s, my 40s, and dare I say now my 50s, have been spent working as an educator in both public and private schools. I started by teaching seventh and eighth graders math, which is a lot of fun, and served as a school counselor now from grades K through 12. My school administrative degree, uh, career started as the head of schools for a private K-12 Christian school before becoming the principal at Bakersfield Christian High School, which turned into the vice president of academic growth. Now I work as an assistant principal at a local elementary school. I am what society calls an educator. I won't let that go to my head either. But focusing in on this topic, what's in an education seemed fitting. I am not interested this morning, though, in addressing the educational systems because I believe that a genuine education is not confined to a stage of life or a building with classrooms and desks or a program that issues diplomas or degrees. See, education, in its purest form, it happens at the nail salon. It happens in the coffee shop as you're conversing with a friend or at the movies or watching TV at home, or around a fishing pond, just trying to catch that big one, or while taking a hike. Wherever a thinking human being engages revelation, an educational experience follows. So with that in mind, let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, you know I am much more comfortable in front of a whiteboard 
than I am behind the pulpit. So please feel my discomfort with your confidence. Give me the words to say this morning that will resonate with each person here in such a way where they walk out this morning knowing a little bit more about who you are. This is my desire. So thank you, dear Father, in advance for answering this prayer of mine. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, to, so to begin, I'm going to break my message in, into two sections. First, I will spend the majority of our time together talking about what an education is. And in closing, I want to address the purpose of an education and how to achieve it. Education alone, without purpose, leads to what Paul admonishes Timothy to avoid, which is worldly and empty chatter myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Speculations are made up of relative opinions, personal views, individual impressions, and multiple points of perspectives, the quality of which all must reflect what is objectively real. Education without purpose leads to a meaningless debates that promote intellectual arrogance, selfish ambition, pride, and or vain conceit. So instead, we are commanded to destroy. The term means to tear down, um, and it's an actively violent term, to tear down. What it means is we, do not, we are not commanded to negotiate, we are not commanded to tolerate, and we are not commanded to go ahead and try to understand another perspective. We are commanded to tear down um, and destroy every argument and all, of all arrogance raised up against the knowledge of God. We do this by taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Thoughts are the basic ingredients that make for an education. So here we go. The standard definition of what is in an education or what an education is. Education refers to the process of facilitating the acquisition of new knowledge, skills, moral values, beliefs, habits, learning, and personal development. This standard definition describes the components that go into an education, but each component is really dependent upon the acquisition of new knowledge. Skills, basic or technical, require new knowledge. Moral values, right versus wrong, requires new knowledge. Beliefs, which is a series of ideas that one deemed to be true, creating a belief system. Learning and personal development is self-awareness, self-reflection. All of these areas depend upon the acquisition of new knowledge. So my focus this morning will predominantly be on the acquisition of new knowledge and how the moral nature of that knowledge shapes one's values and constructs one's belief systems. So first of all, the nature of knowledge. Now I'm gonna get a little philosophical on you right now, so don't worry, it's just a little bit. But it will help us understand the nature of knowledge. Knowledge requires two things to simultaneously exist or knowledge itself ceases to exist altogether. The first thing is that knowledge needs to have something that objectively exists. There must be an objective reality in place for knowledge to potentially exist. If nothing objectively exists, then knowledge has nothing to know. There has to be something in existence that can be known. 
This is what philosophers like to call reality. There is a reality that exists apart from you and I that can be known. So the $1,000 question. So if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hear it, hears it, does it make a noise? Well, the answer to that question is pretty easy. Well, of course it does. You have to understand, our hearing doesn't make something exist or make something real. Reality does not depend upon you and I for its existence. Reality exists apart independently from you and I. Doesn't need us. Keep that in mind. That's an important facet. Second point is the second thing needed for knowledge to exist is an agent that has the capacity to know things. This is not an instinctual ability where innate biological needs drive behavior. This is the divine ability to acquire, to assess, to evaluate, to meditate, to analyze and synthesize reality as it is. So without these two basic knowledge ingredients, there's no such thing as an education. The only way for an educational process to function is for a thinking agent to engage pre-existing or created information in an ongoing dynamic fashion. This simultaneously, simultaneous exchange produces the existence of knowledge, which in turn generates the educational process. The only way that you and I know anything at all is because an omniscient God made us in his image to discover and to know him, our creator. This is the nature of knowledge, and everything else that flows out of education is dependent upon these two realities. So hopefully with this philosophical considerations in mind, I want to turn our attention to the moral and what some might call the ethical nature of knowledge itself. Knowledge is not morally neutral. It comes in the qualities of good and evil that runs itself through all the way through the educational process. You and I are incapable about thinking about anything at all without it being morally colored by our knowledge of good and our knowledge of evil. Where do you think these characteristics come from? Well, if you recall, when God created the heavens and the earth, as we know it, he morally described everything that he made. He called it good. It was all good, day after day after day after day. The reality in which this earth was created was nothing but good. Now, what tree was it that Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to eat? I'm sure you all might remember that. That tree was named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why do you think it was named that? It's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you to answer me. As a teacher, I might be waiting for an answer, but it's rhetorical. Why do you think it was named that? There was no other tree in the garden that had such a name. What was it about eating from this tree that presented such a fatal warning for Adam and Eve? I believe the dominant reason for the fatal nature of this warning was that it would be an act of rebellion against God. The act of rebellion against God is what brought death, but not the knowledge of good and evil. This is why we read in Genesis 3.22, as they were being escorted out of the garden, 
Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. He knows good and evil. So Satan wasn't altogether lying to them when he told them that they would be like God, knowing good from evil. Always keep in mind that the quality of a lie is how little it distorts the truth. And that's exactly what Satan did. And now, God goes on, he might reach out with his hand and take the fruit from the tree of life and eat and live forever. If God possesses the knowledge of good and evil and yet is holy, this knowledge of evil alone is not what brings death. It's the rebellion against the holy God that brings death. But now every thought that we have is, is colored by the knowledge of good and evil. If mankind was left in the garden after eating the tree of life, death would have not have existed and salvation by way of the gospel would have ceased to be an option for us altogether. We would have been in a permanent state of rebellion against God, severed for eternity from a relationship with him. But God, he would rather die than to see this happen to us. So he spared us from that tree of life and sent Adam and Eve out of that garden. We skip all the way forward to Noah's day. It says in Genesis 6, 5, that every thought of this generation's heart was evil. But it, but it wasn't because they couldn't think in terms that were good. They had that knowledge. Noah was able to do so. It was their unwillingness to think in terms of that which is good that led to their destruction. You can skip forward all the way to Paul in Romans 1, where he states, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God and understand the acknowledgement of God himself is always an acknowledgement of that which is good because he exists. He goes, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper. So what kind of things does a depraved mind conjure up? Well, evil things can see from a fallen nature and a fallen condition. An evil man's conscience stands in judgment over him before God. He or she has rejected that which they know is good, and they have embraced the evil that they love instead. Now, reality provides the content of things to know in an educational sense, but the knowledge of good and evil shapes the moral fiber of that knowledge. We now think in terms of synonyms and antonyms. We now, evil is real and it must not be pursued. To pretend that evil does not exist is foolishness, and I would argue that it's dangerous. An educated person can't pretend to just know the good without equally knowing that which is evil. How does one discern the truth without knowing the lie? If one pursues that which is good, he or she, in essence, is pursuing that which is true. Truth separates that which is evil from that which is good. Truth identifies and aligns itself with the good, and it rejects all association with the evil. In seeking the truth, one must identify in a discerning manner that which is good and that which is evil. Any thought that detracts from that which is good is false, and any thought that affirms that which is good is true. With the nature of reality and the quality of truth understood, there are two dominating components of what's in an education 
that they, it depends on. Those components are the things that are real and those things that are true. Truth and reality, they have a symbiotic relationship. If something doesn't exist, it is not true. It is a lie. Deranged people believe in things that are not real. If something is not true, then it is not real. Deceived people believe in false claims. So as an example, as I said, sin is a real thing. So identifying sin in a truthful manner is a good thing. When one treats sin as non-existent, it diminishes its destructive effects. This is an evil thing. It is imperative to interpret information as having these moral qualities. It, is e it either reflects that which is true and good or that which is false and evil. With this philosophical and moral nature of knowledge understood, there are two sources by which all knowledge is derived. Knowledge comes to us by way of general revelation or by way of special revelation. Now, general revelation reveals content associated with empirical realities. Empirical realities is that body of knowledge that resides within our physical universe. We can see, touch, taste, feel, experience it in some way. Empirical refers to the things that we can verify by observation or by experience. Psalms 19.1 is a sample of general revelation where King David declares the heavens tell of the glory of God and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day they pour forth speech and night to night they reveal they reveal knowledge what very thing we're talking about. This is the world of math, sciences, life, physical sciences and social sciences. It is my belief, and maybe it's just my belief, but I believe that math is the language of God. Now, most students I've encountered, they hate math. They really hate math. I would tell a student that I've worked with, I, they would ask me, how can a loving God create math? <laughs> I have no idea. Then they would roll their eyes at me as I told them that math, like no other subject, displays the glory of God. Yeah, right, Mr. Root. In our physical reality, though, math is immutable. No matter what language you speak around the world, math doesn't change. It's been the same since the day it was created by God to today and tomorrow unless God recreates the universe with different features. God's glory is on display in algebra. Its glory is on display in geometry, calculus, trigonometry, and all the applied maths, mathematics across the board. Math can carpet your homes, at least without gaps. Better know your math well if you're trying to carpet your home. It can balance your checkbook. Again, just saying. Design a computer program. It can even construct a complex tune on a piano. It's called music theory. Music is, I mean, math is amazing, but music is amazing too. But math is amazing because it declares the glory of God. Now, I'll turn my attention to science. Science is simply discovering what God has already created. These physical realities can blow one's mind and direct scientists to the creator. Paul declares in Romans 1.20, 
He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. So they, meaning those who engage in this physical universe, are without excuse. There's no excuse for not recognizing the very nature of our physical reality. Science is a glorious subject. It produces both awe and wonder about a God whose DNA is all over his creation. To know the greatness of God is to study biology. To know the greatness of God is to look at chemistry and the organization in that chart. Physics is to know cosmology, human anatomy, health, medicine, engineering, mechanics, archaeology, zoology, agriculture, and on and on. The glory of a creative God is on display in all of these sciences. Science is a theistic endeavor. These are typically called the hard or quantitative sciences where predictability is established, even though some of the sciences that interact are with less uh, predictable phenomenon, such as health, medicine, and agriculture, do exist. Early in my academic career, I had an agnostic professor tell my class one day that his worldview was completely blown apart by this one microscopic creature which forced him out of his atheism. This microscopic creature is the Euglena. I'm not sure how many of you heard the Euglena, but I won't forget it the rest of my life. He went on to explain that there are two standard biological energy sources that all biological creatures possess. A biological creature will either possess a digestive system where they consume food for energy, or they possess a photosynthetic system where they consume the energy from, like the sun, for food. My professor went on to tell us that a euglena has both digestive systems, both a digestive system and a photosynthetic system as dual sources of energy. He then asked this question, how can a microscopic creature possess this kind of complexity from an evolutionary process? Being a materialist, it can't happen. He called it magic. How in the world can a materialist believe in magic? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I propose that the glory of God was on display in the Euglena. This microscopic creature drove a college professor from his view that there is no God to a worldview that there just might be a God. Amazing. Science is amazing. Social sciences um, is a whole other subject area. It's all about how we interact, how we interact with ourselves, psychology, health, PE, how we interact with others, English, languages, anthropology, sociology, government, and business over time, which is history. These are called the soft or qualitative sciences where statistics and economics are used to assess social phenomenon to determine predictability on a normal curve, because nothing is all the same. There's a lot of social variability across these sciences. All of these subjects, though, math, science, and social studies, studies are all the general revelation areas that go into what's in education. 
This is only half of the revelation that God has provided you and I for the realm for learning. But the body of knowledge that exists is unlimited in the realm, the realm of general revelation. No human being has the intellectual capacity to know every aspect of this physical universe. This infinite nature of knowledge is designed to push an education beyond just the confines of general revelation. This knowledge pushes any student into the realm of meaning to ask why questions. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Why do things function the way that they do? What is the meaning of life? Why do we all die? Where do I go when I die? Why is there so much evil in the world? And do I matter at all? I regret to inform you that our educational institutions, for the most part, have stopped asking these questions. They don't even try answering them anymore. I can also inform you that there is a plague across the youth generation for answers to these questions that has resulted in what they're calling a national mental health crisis. Hopelessness, depression, despair, pain have all led to all forms of violence, drug abuse, even suicide. Risk assessments are common in schools today, even at the elementary school that I'm at. Most public and private educational sites explore what they know to be good, to be real, to be true, inside of the box of general revelation as educators encourage students to reject those things that are bad and false. But there is no way of answering these questions with the content in general revelation provides with any confidence as schools scramble to deal with this mental health crisis. But thanks be to God that his glory doesn't re simply reside within the created order plagued by both sin and death. This takes us to our second source of knowledge, special revelation. This information exists outside the body of knowledge, this box we live in, known as general revelation. There is no way of knowing this information without supernatural intervention. The book of Hebrews starts by declaring that God, after he spoke, and I'm going to pause there, Anytime God speaks, that's special revelation. That's outside of the box we're familiar with. So, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. These verses reveal that God wants to be known. He has revealed himself to us, helping us to define what is good, what is true, what is perfect, to know what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. God is not silent. He has spoken into our world, and he has revealed himself through his Son. Coupled with the spoken word, uh, God has also breathed out scripture, his written word, which is beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. 
It is also my strong belief that simply knowing what the Bible says can be ju become just more information that can be thrown into the general revelation box and not treated as special revelation itself. I have been in Christian schools for over 15 years of my life, and I fought against just adding a theology class, tossing in a chapel, or a Bible class that somehow it transforms a secular education into a Christian education. I hope you're surprised when I tell you that just adding these things does not make for a Christian education. It's biblical integration across all the subject areas. Um, if Christian schools don't do this, Christian schools become nothing more than a secular institution playing Christian to its constituencies who identify as Christians. It's got to be able to see God's glory across all subject areas. Special revelation information is not conveyed to you and I just to make us smarter and to increase our intelligence. God has reached down into our box and he's declared, I am the one who created the curriculum you are learning. I am the unchanging, immutable God, so I created math to, to help you get to know me better. I created language so we can communicate and have a relationship. I gave you the sciences so you can discover and create things on your own with the things that I made for you to enjoy. But most of all, I am your salvation from sin and death. Theology is named the queen of the sciences for a reason. Theology is purely the product of special revelation. Without a clear and accurate understanding of who God is, there is no such thing as a meaningful education. So what's in an education? It's God that fills that education with himself so that we can think his thoughts after him, so we can answer the questions of meaning of life, death, origins, evil and good, and the whys of life that can't be explained any other way. But the greatest form of special revelation, I'll argue, is that we have the Holy Spirit today. There is no way for you and I to think God's thoughts after him if not for the Holy Spirit. There is no way for us to accurately interpret and understand his word without the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, I will send you a comforter, and he, the Holy Spirit, is the source of all truth, general and special. He will come to you from the Father, and he will tell you all about me. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. Didn't the disciples have a clue about who Jesus was after three years, 24-7, seven days a week? Jesus is saying that he's going to tell you all about me. There's stuff that these guys didn't even know about who Jesus was. So I can tell you with great deal of confidence that the Apostle John would have never wrote in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that very same Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, meaning John, beheld his glory without the special revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul takes this whole special revelation to the next level, and he provides us with insight into what the Holy Spirit does for us. In 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 9, he says this, this is what is meant by the scriptures, which say that no mere man has ever seen, heard, or ever imagined what wonderful things God has ready for those who love the Lord. Oftentimes, when I hear these verses read, 
the claim is, it's talking about heaven. We resign this text to our imaginations about something to look forward when we die and we're glorified. But these, these verses right here are not extensively about heaven. These are verses explaining the impact that the Holy Spirit reveals in a special manner for those of you, those of us who love him. The very next verse says this, but we know about these things. How do you know about these things pre-death? You can't know about these things, no eye has seen, heard, or heard. He goes on to say, it is because God has sent his spirit to tell us, and his spirit searches out and shows us all things. Catch this next little phrase. The deepest secrets of God. Unbelievable. We know the deepest secrets of God. Are you kidding me? This is special revelation on steroids. He goes on to say, no one can really know what anyone else is thinking or what he is really like except the person himself. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. Kind of getting the point now? So, and God has actually given to us his spirit, not the world's spirit, to tell us about the wonderful free gifts of grace and blessing that God has given us. In telling you about these gifts, we have even used, and this, these next two lines are crazy. Just think about this for a minute. He's even used the very words given to us by the Holy Spirit, not words that we men might choose, not choosing his own words. This is insight that comes from the secret places of God and is revealed through Apostle Paul. Now he's sharing it with the Corinthians. So we use spiritual words to explain the Holy Spirit's facts, but the man who isn't a Christian can't understand and can't accept these thoughts from God, which the Holy Spirit teaches us. They sound foolish to him because only those who have the Holy Spirit within him, them can understand what the Holy Spirit means. Others just can't take it in. But the spiritual man has insight into everything. What do you think everything means? Well, pretty simple. Everything. But does it mean that we have insight into the sciences? Absolutely. Do we have insight into social sciences? Absolutely. Do we have insight into math? God help us, but we do. Do we have insight into good and evil? Or is our insight just confined to the pages of scripture? Now check out this next line. Paul goes on to say, and that, meaning everything, that we have insight into everything, this bothers and baffles the man of this world who can't understand him at all. For certainly he has never been one to know the Lord's thoughts and the mind of Christ. The worldly man doesn't understand or know the mind of Christ and his thoughts of God, but you and I do. We know his thoughts. We know his secret thoughts. Think about that for just a moment. It's pretty mind-blowing. What's in education? It's the thoughts of God himself. His thoughts are written all over our math books. His thoughts are evident in our literature books. Anytime you read something in a literature book, you can ask, what does God think about this or that? And it will give you some insight into it. His glory is on display in our science books. His insights are apparent in the movies you watch. His insights are present in the books that you read and in the conversations that you have throughout the day. 
His presence helps you in your infirmities to make sense out of things. In our pain, in our suffering, in our doubt, doubt it can be a healthy thing because God's right in the middle of that. In our grief and in our despair, the Holy Spirit himself knows how to take our prayers that we can't even utter and merge our thoughts with the very heart of God. This is special revelation. Now, in closing, I'm focusing on the purpose of education. I told you I would get there. It just took me a while. In closing, I want to go ahead and share with you one of my favorite quotes about education. It comes from the mind of Samuel Johnson. He said this about the purpose of education. The supreme end of education is expert discernment in all things. The power to tell the good from the, from the evil, I mean, the good from the bad, the genuine from the counterfeit, and to prefer the good and the genuine to the bad and the counterfeit. It goes a step further, and education is supposed to impact behavior. So in human terms, expert discernment in all things is the purpose of education. In spiritual terms, expert discernment only comes when you and I think God's thoughts after him. God defines what is good because he is good. He determines what is genuine because he is faithful and true. He declares what is holy because he himself is holy in a world that blurs good and evil where evil is treated as good and good is treated as evil where the genuine and the counterfeit exchange roles, expert discernment is very hard to come by. When the education now is opened up to warping realities by claiming that a man can become a woman or vice versa, or that human reason and logic is a hegemonic tool used to oppress those who are socially marginalized as implicit bias and consciously discriminates against such marginalized groups by those in the dominant group, reality and truth must be reestablished. It has to be reestablished. Truth and reality cannot be distorted and it cannot be dismissed. If conflating personal opinions, incompatible ideas, and diverse beliefs all get to be true, then we are at an educational stage where everybody just does what is right in their own eyes. That's not what education is about. So finally, I want to answer a really important question. I've had people ask me this, even here in this church. How does a parent, or a grandparent for that matter, prepare their children for such a world is this. We are in this world, and there's nowhere else to hide. But remember, we are not of this world. While in this world, we must equip our children and ourselves, for that matter, by seeing to it that no one takes our little ones captive through worldly philosophies or empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. So what can you and I do to guard ourselves and our children against deceptive philosophies? The danger is real. The Barna Research Group, who does research about Christian, a lot of Christian topics, has discovered that 60% of all children raised in Christian churches walk away from their faith within their first years, first 10 years of their adult life. This is an epidemic that must be addressed. The church's influence must be reestablished. From this educator's perspective, 
I propose considering the research findings of a gentleman by the name of Dr. William McGuire. He was a social psychologist, um, and he did an extensive study back in 1961 where he investigated how one can guard themselves against the persuasion of others. He was curious about what it would take for a person to change their beliefs versus what it would take for that person to be inoculated against changing their beliefs. His research involved 54 studies with over 10,000 participants in what has come to be known as the inoculation theory. McGuire called his inoculation theory a vaccine against being brainwashed. Much like a biological inoculation is meant, for the most part, to protect one against a specific disease, his inoculation theory has to do with how does one guard one's thinking against what I call the disease of deception. The world has latched onto these findings and have attempted to use these strategies to persuade our youth across multiple topics to reject a Christian worldview and to embrace deceptive philosophies in a thinking environment that confuses clear thinking with claims of misinformation or disinformation. My suggestion is using these findings to inoculate ourselves and our children against all of these lies, no matter how um, small or minuscule the lie is, and protect the truth that objectively resides within the Christian beliefs. Here is how the research was conducted. There were four beliefs that were examined. The first was teeth brushing helps pre prevent tooth decay. That was the first belief. Um, this belief is what I'm going to focus on. The other three beliefs were antibiotics are beneficial to mankind, annual medical checkups are important, and x-rays should be used as an early detection for tu tuberculosis. These were beliefs that people had. McGuire then gathered 240 people into four groups, 60 people per group, who shared the same belief that teeth brushing protects them against tooth decay. Each group received a pre-intervention, um, which I will describe in a second, but all four groups after the pre-intervention participated in a seminar that uh, attacked the very veracity, veracity of brushing one's teeth actually protects against tooth decay. This experiment was, has been conducted over and over again until statistical confidence in the results could be applied. So with group number one, the pre-intervention involved absolutely no intervention at all. For a scientist, it's called the placebo group. Participants were left to their own pre-established beliefs about the effectiveness of teeth brushing in protection from tooth decay before receiving the attack seminar, challenging this belief. An average, after the attack seminar, an average of 77% of this group changed their beliefs about teeth brushing. Group number two, though, this pre-intervention involved reaffirming all of the things that the participants knew about teeth brushing, about it being effective for protecting them against tooth decay. This aligns with the theory that if you just teach students what is true over and over again so that they know the truth, it will help. After the attack seminar, it was found that an average 
of 66% of these participants surrendered the belief that teeth brushing protects against tooth decay. It's a lot to give it up. The third group, the pre-intervention, involved treating the challenges they would hear in the attack seminar from a positive perspective. They reiterated the, the arguments against tooth decay being, um, being a, a brushing teeth as being effective to prevent tooth decay before they went into it. So it was a positively challenge, positive challenge against their beliefs. And when they went into the attack seminar, they received the negative spin as well. So they got hit twice against their beliefs with, with challenges to this. Afterwards, an average of 53% reported that their change, that they changed their, their belief about teeth brushing. Surprisingly, participants seemed to hold on to their beliefs if they felt like their beliefs was being challenged over and over again. But still, the majority of this group three changed their belief. Group number four, though, pre-intervention involved discussing the arguments that they were about to hear in the attack seminar. With knowing what the attacks were going to be, the pre-intervention spent its time equipping the group with arguments to refute, to refute the challenges, to reaffirm their beliefs in the virtue of teeth brushing. And on average with this group, only 24% of the participants abandoned their belief in teeth brushing. So these findings have been tested over and over again for the next 60 years. And the results have been pretty much the same. Thus, these findings are important to our question, what's in an education? If you want to protect against deception and lies, students first must be empowered by the truth. That's a given. But second, we must exercise our knowledge of evil and that that knowledge must be used to refute with our knowledge of good. We must refute the knowledge of evil with the knowledge of good. This is what's called fighting fire with holy fire. We must exercise our knowledge of reality and tear down every thought that challenges what is real. We must exercise our knowledge of what is true to tear down every lie that challenges the truth, no matter how minuscule. We do this through gentleness, through gentleness but not through weakness. We do it with reverence for those who we engage, but we also must have reverence for the truth. This is our educational battle cry. Our knowledge of objective reality, knowledge of objective reality by way of general revelation combined with our knowledge of objective truth by way of special revelation must extol whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. But we do this in tandem as we expose that which is false. We expose that which is dishonorable. We expose that which is unjust. We expose that which is impure. We expose that which is ugly. We expose that which is not commendable. We expose that which is inferior and worthy of condemnation. These are the things that make up a quality education. This is where the glory of God is on display, and mankind encounters his glory by way of God revealing himself in general and special ways. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The distortions and lies of the evil one will have no power here. 
We know his schemes, and we are inoculated against his lies. We are free to know the difference between reality and fantasy. We are free to know the difference between truth and deception. We are free to know the difference between, be, between good and evil. And with the transformational knowledge of the gospel and the spirit of truth, you and I need to be a wrecking ball, tearing down every thought or philosophy that seeks to challenge the knowledge of God. Thank you so much for your time.